Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. From backyard plinking to serious training to big game hunting, Airguns.com has what you need. Umarex offers the most diverse lineup of air guns from traditional BB and pellet guns to cutting edge rifles that fire, get this, 50 caliber slugs or even broadhead tipped arrows. Umarex air guns has led the way with innovative products designed to get the job done. Whether you're hunting whitetails, feral hogs, iguanas, squirrels, rabbits, or even elk or bison, umarexairguns.com is your source for the best air-powered rifles and pistols. Visit umarexairguns.com today. That's umarexairguns.com. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. On X Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next hunt. Try On X Hunt free for seven days. Or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new Elite membership. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. When I was a kid, I took out a hit on a beaver. Um, is the show started? This the show might as well be started. You guys are cool if it yeah. started already. Yeah. Uh, there was a drain in my home township. Do they have townships where you live, Clay? No, I was, I I was going to make a comment about that, that I, I'm not, I don't understand townships. Spencer, do you come from township country? I own many a plot books where, uh, by the time I was like 17 years old, I felt like I, I knew every township I was in without looking at one. Yeah. Mm. So... A township is six by six miles. It's very common in the, square miles. Yeah, very common in the Midwest to have townships. And then there's a small amount of government is run out of the township. So at most townships you look, it'd be like thirty six so it's thirty six square miles. One of those square miles is state school trust land, you know. Hmm. And that's just how it works. So uh our we had a our township had a drain commissioner. I understand now the drain commissioner there is very the drain commissioner in my home township, which is Dalton Township, is very uh, a controversial sort of or 
maybe the county commissioner. Either way, you have a drain commissioner. The drain commissioner would hire me to get problem beavers out of the drain system. Mm. One time I was working this beaver, and it was in the summertime, and uh, shot it, and it sank. And I went and told him, I said, man, you know, I can't really present it to you because it sank, and you paid me my <laughs> 25 bucks anyways. You think about that? That's that's honorable. I'd say that's like a hat tip to the trapper, kind of honorable. Mm-hmm. I think that guy's name, yeah, uh, Merle. His name was Merle, not Haggard. Mm. <laughs> I was just th- gonna say. Do you not, think he'd do the not same Merle now, Merle Haggard? Do you think he'd give the money to you now? Or I'd be pretty shocked to hear he's alive right now. So yeah. no. Uh, no, there's no way that dude's alive still. Nice guy. So uh, I don't know if you guys were reading the New York Times recently. If you see a wolf article in the New York Times, you can virtually guarantee that it'll be uh, something about just how nice wolves are, you know, in the New York Times. There's an article in the New York Times it's kind of a collision of two things I'm super interested in because the the article the the name of the article is this using wolves as first responders against a deadly brain disease and it's saying it's talking about how um these researchers are in Yellowstone are taking a look at whether wolves because they have a magical ability you know everyone who's watched um Never Cry Wolf knows that they have an uncanny magical ability to sniff out disease and kill diseased animals uh, mm-hmm. that wolves all it will take to stop CWD is wolves because they'll go and eat all the CWD positive deer and so they're they're studying this in Yellowstone article goes on and on you know I'll give them this mm. like I'll give them this. I think it's interesting to watch. Um, if you could ever, I'd have to ask my brother if you could do this because this is kind of the, like he, he sort of specializes in like designing studies and statistics and stuff like that. But if you could ever see like, does the spread of chronic wasting disease, which is a deer and elk, it's like a deer family version for you folks at home. It's a deer, it's a cervid. So deer, elk, moose, caribou, you know, white-tailed and mule deer, right? It's the uh, scrapey or mad cow disease version. It's a deer and elk version of that, of scrapey or mad cow disease. Um, it's a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy. And it's spreading very rapidly all around the country. Um its main spread, this is a, I'm going to tell you a controversial statement right now. Oh, captives Duran's not listening. No, because, it, no. It's, the big spreads that have happened around, I'm just going to come out and say this. Uh, the captive servant industry, the captive deer industry has done a mighty lot, done a mighty lot to help CWD get spread around. Uh, even a bunch of money, they just, See now I'm way off on the off on the wolf thing. 
let me lay out the CWD deal a little bit first. CWD, there's no evidence that it passes to humans. Like, no human's gotten it. They even have this group of people. They have a group of like 100 and some people that all ate CWD, unknowingly ate CWD-infected meat at some kind of fundraiser. And then, I don't remember, the bulk of them all uh, voluntarily submitted themselves for annual testing, and none of them have gotten it. Tens of thousands of, of American hunters have eaten CWD-positive meat. It's never jumped. Seth don't even care, do you, Seth? Tell him, Seth. Tell him how little you care. About eating it? I don't care at all. Let me ask you this, Seth. If I made, let's say I, I went to Doug's house. Yeah. And I got a bunch of the, I went to the, wherever they do the testing. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want a bunch of those positive deer brains. Okay. And I made a burger in which I took 10 CWD positive deer. Yep. And ground up their meat and put some of the brain in there and put some of the spinal column tissue in there and made a burger. Would you eat that burger? Well, I don't, I don't eat the brains and spinal column anyway. Okay. Let's say I just Leave made that a, out. I'll eat the burger. Really? Yeah. See, that's how I test a CWD denier. Are you a CWD denier or you just don't think it's going to jump to humans? No, I, I believe in CWD 1,000%. Like you accept that it's a disease. Absolutely. And it's spreading around. Yep. But you just and I like, like take precautions to not spread it around and, you yeah. know, I, I don't when, deny that shit at all. But it, when it comes to human health, like you're not worried that you're going to be the dude that gets it. No. No. There I, seems to be like a direct correlation between how many people you're feeding in your family and like how serious you take CWD. Oh, um, absolutely. I Seth, just, how big is your family? I, I mean, um, me and my girlfriend that... Sometime. Who's probably who's emerging as the best wildlife artist in America? Tell her, tell everybody her name, Kelsey Johnson. Tell them her Instagram K, handle. K Ray Johns is. I better check to make sure that's right. You know, emerging. Did you hear what I'm saying, Clay? Emerging yeah. as probably America's greatest wildlife artist. I've seen some of her stuff. It's it's cool. It's cool stuff. I have a pronghorn picture of hers hanging up in my yeah. house. Yeah, it's damn good got. stuff. K Ray Spell it for everybody. K R A E Artworks.com. Yep. Check it out. Folks. Seth's girlfriend. Uh anyway, Seth Seth will eat the burger. That's how I test whether someone that's like people that say CWD is no big deal. I need to get a batch of these burgers. So when I when someone says, I don't well, I'm not worried about CWD, I can fry them up one of my CWD burgers. If they eat it, then I'm like, dude, I believe everything you say. Or I believe that you believe everything you say. If they pause, then I'm like, we got a problem. Yeah. I, Steve, I mean, go ahead, Clay. The, I want to get so, back to this so wolf situation. No, no, we're 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 take your C, time. We're in a CWD zone here in Arkansas. We're in one you here. Know, yeah. And I was just going to say, I'm, I'm in some ways with Seth, like I'm not that worried about it. And, and I, that is displayed to me because I have not had my deer tested. Which I'm, and you're feeding them bit, to your kids. I do, and I, I'm not necessarily proud of that. But yeah. I, I, we've been eating deer from this region for 20 years. I mean, my kids have grown up with it. So my point is, is that if we, if we start, I mean, we've already had it pre-testing. Yeah, I mean, I'm you with know, you. that's the thing. So I'm gonna start making a habit of getting deer tested, but we never have. You know. So, uh, bubbly Doug Duran, 
he gets irritated when people say that, like, if if you were to say to to, to Doug, I don't care about CWD because I'm not worried about catching CWD. Doug feels you're missing the point, right? Because right. as prevalence goes up, um, it's always fatal. Like you don't, no deer survive CWD. As prevalence goes up, you're going to have population wide impacts. And he feels, some people contest this. Doug feels it's beginning to happen. And you're going to see that in these areas that have 75, you know, and climbing um, infection rates, that you're going to get to where you're going to see population crashes dying yeah. from CWD. And also, you're not going to have old mature bucks because deer don't live long enough. I killed a CWD positive deer this year. Did you eat it? No. Give it a sack, man. Well, at the time, I offered it up to anybody on the editorial team, um, and nobody took it. I was even offering it to people for like them to feed their dogs with, and nobody took it. Um, to feed a dog? Yeah, ask Yanni. Come on. Come I, on. I offered it to Yanni, and it was a hard no. He wouldn't feed it to his dog? Dude, Yanni I'll feed my dog. Up Yanni also brought up a good point that if he were to feed it to his dog and uh, ignored the potential health thing, his dog would then go shat it out in his yard and be spreading CWD all over his property, um, which I, I can respect that stance. Yeah, that's a good point. You know what's funny about this article? Back back to the article here. So it's like this article where it's, you know, you know, it, tomorrow there'll be an article like wolves uh, actually help bring more rainbows. You know, if we had more wolves, we have more rainbows. Um, they're never just like a large wild canine. They're always a magical creature. And uh, so they're doing this thing. And, and I am interested to see like, like I'd be interested to see if CWD spread slows in places that have high wolf densities. Um, this thing goes on and on, like saying like, this could be a reason why we should reintroduce more wolves around the country. Cause they'll sniff out the CWD and they finally give a fish and game guy. They give a, um, chief of the wildlife division of Montana fish, wildlife and parks. They give him like at the end of the article, they throw him a bone and give him a quote. He expresses doubts that wolves would prevent chronic wasting disease. He says, wolves help remove sick animals, but animals don't get visibly ill for about two years. So they are carriers and spreaders, but they don't get the symptoms. And to counter this, they go on and say um, that uh, the the Miss Brandle, who's uh, involved with this research, goes on to say that um, that these magical wolves, she doesn't use magical, said that wolves may detect the disease long before it becomes apparent to people mm. through smell. Like he'll be like, like a cancer dog. He'll be like, like those dogs. That deer smells like it's got CWD. I'm gonna go. I, I'm automatically thinking about the welfare of the wolves, man. I mean, we won't feel we won't feed this stuff to our kids, but we're we'll feed it to these uh, majestic wolves. You see what I'm saying? Like, oh, they, yeah. they no concern for the wolves here. They, yeah, but wolves always get like, I listen, man, I want to go. I, I like wolves. I like seeing wolves. I like seeing wolf tracks. I like wolves. I like to see wolves get restored. But I just like to also be like realistic about it and yeah. not do all the the hyperbolic BS that people do to like to to proselytize wolves. 
And that's hard for people. Like they have a phenomenal marketing engine behind them. Uh, how, how's that? Is that good? A guy that, died. That article, that article feels an awful lot like the one that the New York Times ran in like 2018 about letting mountain lions eat the feral horses. And that'll be the solution to the problem. Do you remember that? Yeah. And did you ever hear Carl Malcolm uh, tear that? We tried to get that writer on the podcast. He wouldn't come on the podcast. Carl wrote a Carl wrote a scathing critique of that article. Um, who's a he's a professional biologist, you know. Uh, he wrote a scathing critique of that article, but the Times didn't publish it because their rebuttals are generally very short. And Carl had all these statistics to point out areas where some of the highest mountain lion densities overlap with some of the highest wild horse densities, and also laid out a lot about how mountain lions use the landscape. Um in a way that wouldn't at all be beneficial to killing off horses, like where they hunt, where they occupy, isn't where horses go. It was just an asinine, an asinine article. Um, and the writer wouldn't even stand by it to come on the show and talk about it. It it was just, it it was a joke. Guy died. uh, There's an article floating around right now. This guy, they've had this body for a long time. So there's, there's this dude that was alive, uh, 1,000 to 1,400 years ago um, in the desert southwest. He died of constipation. Mm. Jeez. Mm. That's terrible. Yeah. And it seems as though, as they're looking at his, his diet, that uh, he had for months been... Someone had been for months feeding him grasshoppers with the legs torn off. He ate mainly grasshoppers in the painful months prior to his death. Now, why why do you say someone was feeding him? I well, mean, it goes on to say that he, he was in such bad shape. He had what's called a megacolon. There's mm-hmm. a par- he had a parasite, Trypanosoma cruzi, which I'd never heard of had blocked up the man's gastrointestinal system. So his colon swelled to six times normal size. It's a condition called megacolon. So the guy can't digest food properly, and he was becoming malnourished. They think that he would have been so bad by looking at his body that he probably couldn't even walk or eat on his own. He was in that bad of shape. And then for the last two or three months of his life, Someone was feeding him, or he was feeding on legless grasshoppers, the, like the squishy wow. part. Wonder, wh- I wonder why. I don't know. They they, they they found this guy back in 1937 in a rock shelter along the Rio Grande and Pecos Rivers in South Texas. You can't say that. You can't say Rio Grande River. Do you know that? No. Because you're saying River Grande River. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got you. I just saw, I just, let me rephrase that. The Rio Grande. (laughs) I'm just going to say the Rio Grande and Pecos River. So this dude was was living, was he like living in in a town somewhere or just out in the bush? What do you mean a town somewhere? Oh. We said, yeah, like a a Pueblo or something. They they found him like in a rock shelter. Yeah. Mm hmm. So he was like a primitive fellow. 2.6 pounds of feces. Mm. 
and a vast amount of food remains that were never processed. That's not that much feces. No. I never go on a scale, but I'm not like blown away by that. You ever uh, weigh it, Spencer? No. He's shaking his head. Chester? No. 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 I feel like I feel like wrestlers do that. I I had a had a guy one time tell me that he said you'd be surprised what you'd eat when you're hungry. And he told he said that statement after he told the story of riding a train from somewhere in New Mexico to San Antonio, Texas in a boxcar that he'd jumped in. He he rode the entire way. For three days, the train didn't stop. When he got to San Antonio, Texas, he was 16 years old. He'd run away from home, and he jumped out of the boxcar and went and found in a dumpster some molded biscuits and raw bacon, and he ate them. I worked with this guy. He was like in his 60s. This was 20 years ago, and at the time, he's in his 60s. And he looked at me, and he said, Clay, you'd be surprised what you'd eat if you were hungry. And I believed him. Yeah. He Did went he get to prison. from that? I don't think so. Dang. I take yeah. that back about um, Seth said wrestlers probably know how much it weighs. And I guess when I was in high school wrestling, I wasn't eating a bunch. But before weigh-ins, if you'd go go to the bathroom, you could usually, if you had a a nice good crap, you could usually lose about a pound. So That's what wrestlers do? Yeah. That's interesting. Just try and get get all everything out when you can before you hop on the scale. They get a pound. Uh, what's interesting about how much it goes on to say like how much pressure this guy had going on. There's a thing, um, a phytolith, which is a plant part, and usually a phytolith can pass through a human's digestive tract unscathed. But the phytoliths in this guy's uh, digestive tract were split open and crushed, which points to an incredible pressure that was exerted on a microscopic level in this guy's intestinal system. This is going to be detailed in a forthcoming book called The Handbook of Mummy Studies. And if you think I'll not be buying The Handbook of Mummy Studies, you are wrong. (laughs) Jeez, that sounds very painful. Uh, Speaking of painful, did you guys hear about Seth uh, almost getting uh, attacked by a wild weasel this morning? He's lucky to be alive. Yeah, it was scary. Tell him, tell him what happened, Seth. Um, we identified a culvert pipe that would be good for trapping weasels, and uh, I I dumped down over the the bank and in re- the dark. In the dark, I reached down in the culvert pipe and to put a trap, a box, a weasel box with with a trap in it, and uh, I heard something growled at me. And how, like how, you got it sound again, Seth. <laughs> Seth won't make okay. I tell the story. I don't. I do not think I can accurately mimic the sound because it sounded bigger than a weasel. Um, he was in a culvert. Cried, it was, it, he it cried. Was, he cried like a little baby. That that's false. <laughs> what what types of weasels are eee! you looking for? He, he, Seth's like. Eee! <laughs> Long tail weasel. Yeah, long tail weasel. Well, it, Seth, it was in a culvert, so it like it, yeah, it was like sure, it, it was like growling like, in a in a probably megaphone. like a fourteen inch, sixteen inch culvert. I mean, that would make it sound really loud. Yeah, yeah. but here's the you thing: about, he just keeps talking about this this horrific growl. And I th- I knew I ran down there with a flashlight. I thought we might have a bobcat. 
That's what I thought. I thought mm. first thing that came Seth, to mind was Bobcat. By the way, Seth's like, eat! And <laughs> I went down there and shined a light in there, and we went to the other end, and it was just a little teeny weasel come out the other end. And then we spent an hour trying. Seth won't say what the sound sounded like. Because I, I can't even begin to mimic And we've it. tried every, like, her. <sighs> No, it's like a weasel growl. Like, well, how do, what the, <laughs> well, I don't know how to mimic that. He won't. He will not do the sound. It like it wasn't like er. It wasn't like. It was like er. No, <laughs> no. I, I. It's. It was like. To try to explain it, it was like a. Very, like soft, quiet, growl. But it startled you. But yeah. I that, could tell how startled he was because when I went down there, the weasel box is just kind of thrown down <laughs> in the pipe. He didn't even properly place it. Hey, there's a YouTube video that says sound of weasel, and it's a weasel in a cage making a growl. Oh, can you play that for us real quick? I'm trying here. Mm. Is that what you heard, Seth? That's not what I heard. It's not very loud, guys. Oh, there it is. There it is. It's like a chuckle. Is that what you heard, Seth? That the the the, the that that part sounds a little familiar. That's what scared you. But it didn't. It didn't sound like it was like. It was like. <laughs> it was like two of those. But uh, it was I, in a damn culvert. He went, he I'd went, like to bring up that that's went, some good weasel trapping. That's some dang oh. good weasel trapping. <laughs> the to sign go reading. Set a weasel trap. Stick your hand in a hole, and there's already a weasel there. The I fact just, that, I, yeah, the sign reading that went into this, that we identified such a hot locale that he was actually in the culvert. And then we shined legit. through. You couldn't see all the way through. So I ran up and over the road and down the other embankment and couldn't find the exit track. Then I realized that weasel was so scared of Seth that when he come out the other end of the culvert, he must have... Cleared 48 hey, inches of snow before his feet hit the ground. Here's a great question, though, Steve. Here, here's a trapping question, and this is going to show the heart of the trapper, and, and I don't know which way it's going to go. Would you have killed the weasel in the culvert if he wasn't in a trap? Oh, I thought we had a bobcat, and that bobcat would have been in trouble. And the weasel not the weasel. In, oh, yeah. Okay. Because it's like when you're coon hunting with dogs – like we'll we'll see a coon in a tree and not kill it because our dogs didn't tree it. We'll walk past a coon. Yeah, well that's in a more tree. of a training thing, and I'm not worried about training up Seth. <laughs> Already okay. trained well, Clay. You, gotcha. <laughs> I'm not gonna like spoil Seth by sh- by getting a weasel that he didn't tree up. Uh so she hasn't been uh she hasn't been approved yet, but Biden made his selection of interior secretary. Um if you if you hunt and fish or if you like to, if you're just generally like to be outdoors, I don't care if you're a skier, biker, hiker, definitely if you're a hunter and angler, probably the most influential person in the country for you, particularly if you live in the Western U.S., probably the most influential person in your life, whether you know it or not, is the interior secretary. So the secretary of the interior. Um. Outside of like the ag secretary, who under Trump was Sonny Perdue, who oversees like USDA, you know, Forest Service lands, the interior secretary is like BLM, refuges, national parks, all these land management, you know, all of these land management agencies sit under this interior secretary and they kind of set the tone 
for what goes on in this country around land management on public lands, federal public lands. Highly influential. Uh, when Trump came in, he initially appointed Zinke, Ryan Zinke from Montana, who had been a Navy SEAL. He ran into a lot of ethics troubles and left and was replaced by a guy named Bernhardt. And Bernhardt, Trump, so he, Bernhardt almost did four years from Trump. Bernhardt did a lot of great stuff. He did a lot of annoying stuff, but he did a lot of good stuff. And uh, was very good on access. So very good on opening up lands, the hunting and fishing that, that previously weren't. Was good on migration corridors. Was good on some management issues like overturning some Obama-era rules that restricted Alaska's ability to use certain management practices on refuge lands. That was a real slap in the face to the state of Alaska. Um, they did a lot of good stuff. He did a lot of good stuff, but he did a lot of bad stuff. They had this energy dominance. The Trump administration had this, you know, energy dominance plan, right? Um, and it and their their MO for the, the history of Trump's term was to really try to up energy extraction on public lands. Um I'm not a I'm not a big fan of just coming out and saying that you just want to maximize output and not talk about how you want to do it in a responsible, gradual way. Uh, but Biden just did his pick, and I was really hoping that he was going to pick Martin Heinrich from New Mexico. And I know there's all kinds of reasons, all kinds of political stuff, but he was my, he was my like, I would have been very, very happy because here you would have had an avid hunter, avid angler, um, great conservation ethic, extremely knowledgeable about the landscape out there. Um, his head's on straight. He like knows what stuff matters for hunters and anglers. You couldn't have done better than Heinrich, who's a Senator from New Mexico. And it was rumored that he was going to get the nod or, you know, there was a lot of people pushing for him to get the nod, but it went to subject to approval, went to Deb Haland from New Mexico, the first Native American to get appointed as Interior Secretary. So that, 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 that's a big win for Native Americans here. Um, I am, like, trying to be optimistic here. I, I'm, a, I'm worried about a couple things that, that would happen. Uh I'm worried that under Biden and under Halen that we might do too much renewable energy stuff on public lands. Um, these solar arrays and wind farms are – we can't just turn the landscape into a solar farm. It's very destructive to wildlife habitat. Uh, and so this kind of like, I feel that there's going to be this like knee jerk push into doing, creating like industrial landscapes out on our public lands of solar arrays. It's, you know, that stuff can be catastrophic to wildlife. So I'm a little afraid of that. There's a couple other things I'm afraid of, but maybe I'll be pleased in the end. You guys got any thoughts Mm. on this? Mm. You ought to. I think it should just take that solar energy and make everyone get the Elon Musk's uh, 
solar energy on the roofs of everyone's houses instead of out on the environment. Yeah, that comes with complications too, but I'd rather that. Yeah. Um, Watching mass amounts of grassland and massive amounts of, you know, open country converted into wind farms. They're so noisy too. Oh, man. Where I grew up, we had a bunch of them. And uh, the only thing they were good for was obviously the energy they were creating, but you could check the wind real easy when you're going to go hunting, see which way they were pointed. <laughs> no, that's a good point. There's enough. See, that's, that's always looking at the bright side. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a 3,000 acre solar, solar farm that's proposed to, to go in right next to my family's hunting property in Pennsylvania. Is that right? But not on public land. It's not public, but it is like some of the best elk habitat you'll find in the state. And it's, there's a shitload of elk on it. Kiss that shit I've I've seen the big wind, the big wind turbines out West, the solar farms I'm less I, I know less about just because I haven't seen them. I mean, are these some massive, like like him saying a three thousand acre solar farm? That's news to me. I didn't know we had them that big, so that would effectively, I mean, they would fence these things so that it would impede movement of wildlife. Oh yeah, it's like it's an it's an industrial. It winds up being an industrial landscape. They basically yeah. <clears throat> they basically um, blanket the landscape. Yeah. yeah. Then you have all, you know, roads. I mean, it's just like, it's like, an, like it's, it's an industrial development project. Right. And so, and, and I, and the little bit I've, not a little bit, the, the fair bit of reading I've done on Hayland is that that's like a, a high priority. Other people speculate that a high priority could be um, trying to seed lands back to tribes, which is, you know, is an enormous minefield. Um, and I and and would be highly controversial, and may distract like that conversation may distract from some of the things that I would view as high priority that were likely to get taken care of. But we'll see. Hopefully, we'll all be real pleased. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. From backyard plinking to serious training to even big game hunting, Umarex Airguns.com has what you need. 
Umarex offers the most diverse lineup of air guns, from traditional BB and pellet guns to cutting-edge rifles that fire 50-caliber slugs or even broadhead-tipped arrows. As air gun hunting has grown across the nation, Umarex Air Guns has led the way with innovative products designed to get the job done. Whether you're hunting whitetails, feral hogs, iguanas, squirrels, rabbits, or even elk or bison, Humorexairguns.com is your source for the best air-powered rifles and pistols. Humorexairguns.com also has a lineup of airsoft and paintball markers that replicate your favorite concealed carry pistols, which allow you to practice drawing, aiming, and firing for pennies on the dollar and without loading up to go to the range. Visit humorexairguns.com to see how far air power has come since you were a little kid. That's humorexairguns.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. We had a conversation recently about castration bands. I found a coyote shit with a castration band in it. Was I telling you about this, Spencer? You talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. I found a coyote shit. I was hunting antelope with my kids and found a coyote shit with a cast. What a castration band is, you could take a lamb. And I remember this kid named Paul Anderson doing it to his dog when I was growing up. Um, you take this little rubber band and wrap it around his scrow, and it the, causes the scrow to fall off. You ever have that done to you, Seth? <laughs> no. Nope. I try to avoid that kind of stuff. A guy rode in a rancher from uh, southeastern Montana, and he rode in. He said people use those castration bands to dock sheep tails. So you notice like now and then you'll see, you know, lambs aren't supposed to have like lambs are born with a big long damn tail. But everybody cuts the tail off them. And he was saying that the reason you cut lambs off tails is you prevent dung buildup and maggot infestation on the lamb's backside. So that tail builds up in lamb feces, flies land on there, it's bad for the lamb. So what they do is they put that castration band around the tail and it cuts off circulation, the tails falls off. He's saying that he thinks this coyote shit that had a castration band in it, he said, quote, odds are the lamb had lost his tail in a pasture somewhere, and the coyote found himself a little lamb tail jerky laying on the ground and ate everything, including the band. We see it in our ranch dogs scat all the time. Seth Price, Hmm. still running a Hotmail address. Really? <laughs> Look at that. <clears throat> I didn't know it was a thing anymore. Clay, tell us about this Canadian Lynx that just did this this kind of cool thing. Yeah, you know, Steve, this actually took place uh, a while back. It just resurfaced in the media, but... Oh, there's, that uh, happens to me all the time, man. Yeah, it's, the other day it's I sent, still a great story. The other day I sent her producer a story about a guy who, uh, uh outfitter who'd gotten in so much wild had so many wildlife violations that he had what's called a global, he had like a global forfeiture of hunting privileges. 
And she wrote wow. back, she's like, you know, this was 19 years ago. Are you sure you want me to put this in the show? <laughs> I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> well, hey, this is worthy, Steve. This, uh, this is the longest documented travel of a lynx in, in biological history. And, and obviously, you know, how many lynx in the history of the planet have been, have been monitored. But basically, so the, the big story is, is that in the early 2000s, there were 218 lynx. One source says, another source said 90 lynx transplanted from Canada into the high country of Colorado. So basically, they were trying to restore the lynx population in Colorado. So they were catching them up in Canada where there's a bunch of lynx, bringing them down into Colorado where there were no lynx. Hey, Clay, do you have to know what year lynx got Endangered Species Act protections? Yes. Uh, Canadian lynx were listed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as threatened in the contiguous U.S. in 2000. So they're not on the endangered species list, as I understand it. They're on the threatened list. Yeah, but that's which, still the e- They're on the ESA list as threatened. That's right. So okay, the only yeah. the only U.S. state that you can harvest and hunt lynx is Alaska. Yep. Uh, but in Canada, they're thick. You know, they're they're doing very well. And um, I, I I read an interesting stat too, Steve, that you'll appreciate. So at the peak of the fur trade, the modern fur trade, in the in the early 1980s, they were exporting about 35,000 lynx pelts out of Alaska and Canada. And obviously today that's much less just because of supply demand, you know, but that's off to, that's off the topic here. This so this lynx and he's got this science name, you know, BCO3MO2. They Dropped him off in Colorado when he was two years old, and he lived in Colorado for four years, hmm. and then he just disappeared. Settled right in. He settled right in. Man, th- the amount of surveillance they do on these cats is kind of creepy, man. They knew how many sires of kittens this cat had, uh, or, or how many sets of kittens this cat had sired. It really? said it sired two litters of kittens, one in 2005, one in 2006. So he was getting some play in Colorado. He was. He was. And lived there for four years. It must have been like a marital dispute that pushed him out. I don't know. But he left. In 2007, he went missing. And so the, the biologist just felt like it was just a loss. You know, like all these radio-collared animals that they're tracking all over the place. Yeah. Bears, lions. Like, collars just go dead. You know, that is just the... It happens. It happens here in Arkansas with our bears a lot. Just randomly, something goes wrong. Collar goes dead. Animal disappears off the data points of these biologists. And um, but in 2010, mm-hmm. Steve, a trapper in Nordeg, Alberta, catches a big lynx with a with a collar on it, and uh, the cat was already dead in the trap, or he would have. He would have uh, he would have released it, he said. But uh, anyway, he he gets the number off the collar, calls the number, and the and the people are just amazed. And the cat had traveled about twelve hundred miles, and uh, the cat was nine years old at the time and went back tw- to Alberta. Okay, it was caught in British Columbia. Oh, sorry. It went to Alberta, so it didn't it didn't quite make it home, um, but it. It just went north for, and there's no, 
you know, these things are so mysterious because we just don't know why it did it. We we don't know why, but the the travel was, you know, obviously this cat's crossing major interstate highways. I mean, there's all kind of hazards that this cat would have had to have gone through. So traveled um, north through the bulk of, because he started out in southern Colorado. Right, San Juan Mountains. Yeah. Traveled San Juan like Wilderness. all through Colorado. Presumably, like, I don't know, swung through Utah or western Wyoming. Traveled through Idaho or Montana, and then made his way way ass into Canada. Yeah, God, that's yeah. These so these cats, Steve, typically have a home range of twelve to eighty three miles. Is what the 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 website the well it was the it was the Fed website. Um, it was really specific, but so. You know, the males have bigger home ranges. The females are going to have smaller home ranges. So, you know, they're known to travel. You know, a lynx, most of his diet is snowshoe hares. They're highly specific. I did a little research on why, how are they different than bobcats. You know, they look a lot like a bobcat. And it, it mainly has, they can be slightly larger than a bobcat, but they're super specialized. That's pretty much what makes them different. You know, bobcats live all across the U.S. I mean, they're very widely distributed. Lynx are highly specialized for hunting snowshoe hares in snow and in the boar. Typically, the well, now they're in the boreal forests, but at one time they were in all the highlands of North America, as I understand it. So, and have a big ass, have a big ass foot and bigger tufts. I've talked about this on the show a handful of times, but um, I've only laid eyes on one lynx, man, and it was just, and they have a face that kind of looks like a human baby in a weird way, man. They're wild looking. Guess how? If you want to pre-order the handbook of mummy studies, guess what that bad boy is coming in at? It's free delivery on Prime. Twenty four ninety nine. Hardcover is four hundred and forty nine dollars and ninety nine cents. Oddly, the paperback is six hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents to pre-order it. Why would it be that expensive? I don't know, but I hope these good people are listening and send me one of these damn books. That's crazy. And then um, um is the mountain lion that recently made a long trip? Uh that was more recent. Yeah, that was uh so there was a young lion collared in New Mexico February the 12th in kind of like northwest New Mexico and uh he he was documented to have traveled 558 miles and settled in the Mesa Verde National Park. So that's that's like it's not standard mountain lion protocol, but that's like not terribly uncommon. I mean, pretty cool, no doubt. Oh yeah, but just like amazing that they can move around and and avoid trouble. Mm. You know? All those highways. Yeah. Passing through towns, crossing highways, and not starving to death. Steve, we have a uh, so two, three years ago, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission changed the title of one of our biologists from the bear biologist to the large carnivore biologist because we had enough legitimate mountain lion sightings in the state that it deemed a biologist to be over mountain lions in arkansas mm-hmm. were super fascinating and i i 
talked to the guy the other day for a podcast and basically he thinks we're getting mountain lions on these big treks, these big journeys. Like they're they're coming down the Missouri River, coming into Arkansas, and they'll we'll have just like a spasm of lion sightings that span like all of you know, I mean like counties, you know, like there's a lion there, there's a lion there, there's a lion there. And it's the same lion, and he's on this big walkabout. Yep, yep. And they leave though. There's, there's, they have yet to document a lion that is a breeding populations of lions here. But every year we have lions, and so he speculates that it's this, it's this edge of lion habitat where the males are dispersing deep. And he said, as soon as a female decides to live here, then we'll start getting, you know, males that come and stay, like because they're basically looking for mates and looking for territory. They're yeah. not uh, a male's not going to come in and inhabit a place that doesn't have a female was his point historically it was the most widely distributed large mammal in the western hemisphere yeah down to the southern tip of patagonia right all through south america central america up into canada coast to coast here in the u.s it was everywhere It's weird that you had this little population hang on in, in Florida hmm. and then just get wiped out in the eastern U.S. and then just very slowly but gradually coming back. You think, you know how they like, they seem to be doing um, fairly well in like California where it's heavily populated? Yeah. They're eating house cats and dogs and shit like that. Yeah. Do you think eventually the they'll slowly start? populating like the eastern states oh I think where it's so. where it's like like they've cut they're, they're gonna like kind of learn to live amongst humans oh i yeah i mean you're definitely i don't know how many generations it'll take but i think that you'll have i mean at this moment like we're having like expanding you know mountain lions are expanding range black yeah. bears are ex- actively right now expanding range so I think definitely, I don't know what it would be. I don't know if like my kids' kids will be surprised to hear that once upon a time it was unusual to have a mountain lion like in Ohio. Yeah. Because um, it's just like, it's one thing to pass through, but like they got to have enough room to not get in that much trouble. But the fact that they're able to um, do well, not do well, but to to live in huge population centers in California but then you have like a lot of topography, steep, brushy country. Yeah, they can still hide. Yeah, more deer. There's still deer. I mean, deer. they've got they've got to have a ton of deer. They've got or you know elk. They've got to have some type of ungulate. You know, cultural tolerance will be the main thing. I think in the east, just like how many pe- how how many lions will people put up with? Which I think the tolerance would be left in the eastern part of the U.S. would be less than the cultural tolerance in the West for large predators. Yeah, I mean, there's celebrities around California, man. I mean, and like around exactly. the population hubs in California, population centers there. Uh, one of the, one of the, I think, probably an outstanding question on it is how well they can do in, in an agricultural landscape, too, where so much of the ground is tilled and open. Um, I don't know, man, but they're, they're definitely expanding out. You know, years ago now, California banned 
mountain lion hunting. First they went after houndsmen, then they just banned it all together. It's kind of like the playbook there, as you like, like it's the death by a thousand cuts playbook. Uh, mm-hmm. They were looking at this dispersal study. They thought that because California had no lion hunting, they were expecting to see lions like sort of flowing out of California. And they did this, they were looking at this study of like dispersal. And it was funny because uh, Nevada, which still has like a thriving lion hunting culture, Nevada actually has lions that they're producing that are dispersing westward into California. Like they're still creating them mm. and, and kicking them out. That's uh, wild. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. Uh, in, in the early 2000s, I was trying to do a magazine story for outside. I could never get them to assign me the story, but I kept wanting to do a story about um, these guys in like, you know, anywhere like North Carolina, Tennessee, like the local crazy guy that would see a mountain lion. Yeah. And everybody's like, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I was kind of, a, and I was a little bit ahead of my time because this guy even started this thing called like the Eastern Puma Research Center or something like that. Cause he had run into one on a road hunting turkeys, I think. And it haunted him. Everybody thought he was a nut job. And then 10 years later, they're getting hit. One gets hit on the road in Connecticut. Yeah. A yeah. wild born one. In, in Pennsylvania, I mean, like I always heard. Like everyone knew someone that either seen one or like had a track that they'd found and like cast or it was just like, you know, it was, it was, there was always stories of people seeing mountain lions and people having like, I haven't seen them, but like heard of people who had like has pictures of lions that they had killed because they were like killing the chickens or something or that kind of shit, you know? This dude in my home state wrote this book, Beast of Never Cat a God, I think it was what the book was called. But it was about him getting all obsessed with mountain lions in Michigan, which wound up not being bullshit. Yeah. They just move. Yeah, like, well, I mean, look, this dude right here, Norton, yeah. it's not even like that big of a deal. This dude went 586 miles, man. Yeah. That freaking links. How far did that links? Well, there go? was 1,200 miles. There was a documented lion that went from the Dakotas to Connecticut in the last 10 years. Yeah, I think yeah. they think he swung around up through, uh, I think they think that that dude swung around up through Michigan's Upper Peninsula and dropped down from Canada into the east. That's like one guess of how he might have gone. I heard he got on a FedEx cargo plane <laughs> chasing chickens and got out on the other side. Okay, so... Spencer, you were right. Spencer sent me a thing where he's like, I bet you a hundred people sent you this. And they had. Tell, tell, talk about what it was that this hundred people had sent me, Spencer. Recently, this week out of Kentucky, an elk antler turned up that looks very old and carved into it says D Boone. Um, and then it has the year 1778. And the story goes, this this antler was found in the late 1800s and was passed through some generations and has now wound up with the RMEF. Um, and there's all this excitement around it. On Facebook, for example. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. On Facebook, for example, it's been liked 4,000 times, commented on 700 times, and shared 5,000 times because people are excited that this antler, um, which came from – the species of elk that is now extinct turned up in Kentucky. 
not, not a species, not a species of elk, Spencer. Subspecies. If not, not prop. No. No. Okay. A variety. Tell us more. A variety. I, I don't buy. Okay, go on. Here's the thing. Well, I, I said to you, Steve, I'm like, I'm sure this has crossed your inbox a hundred times. I don't want to get into you, the sub, I don't want to get into the subspecies thing, but I'll point this out. At the time, you had elk just from one end of the country to the other. There wasn't like unique population groups. They probably all intermingled. But but sure, subspecies. That's fine. A, a geneticist would, would would not agree with that. Well, I'm going to tell you what the Facebook post said and why <laughs> I said that. It says resource. Private land biologist Joe Lacefield, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, funded the carbon-14 dating of the antler, and it was traced back to the extinct subspecies of eastern elk. The carbon-14 test dated the elk to have died in the range of the years between 1730 and 1806. I would like, here, wow. here's the other thing. I would like to see that report. Because having done some C-14 submissions... They usually give you these things in like sigmas, okay? They, they they give you these things where it's like percentage, like these like percentage likelihoods. And it'll go like 33%, 66%, 99% likelihood. I would like to see, uh, is the report included there? No, no. The, uh... That's that's the best evidence they give. And then they end the thing by saying there's no way to prove that Boone inscribed the antler, but the evidence says it is likely. Okay. According is that a legitimate I mean, like we're we're saying that this is a legitimate news report. Yes. Well, wow. we're saying that they there is an elk antler that's undisputed. It has D Boone written on it. That's undisputed. They submitted it for C fourteen dating radiocarbon dating that's undisputed it came back with that date range but i would just be curious to see what probability they ascribe to the accuracy of that date range can i can i jump in here a minute and talk about see radiocarbon yes okay that's pretty fascinating man but yeah oh yeah no 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 it is it is and i'm not even saying that it's not d boone's daniel boone Boone would have been during that time from 1806 to 1830. He, didn't he die in the 1820s, Steve, in Missouri? Uh, someone can pull that up. Teens. Pull that up, Seth. See how fast. You know what I would type in, Seth? I would type in um, where, Daniel Boone. Where and when did Daniel Boone die? Well, he died in Missouri. It says that two Daniel burials. Boone first arrived in Kentucky in 1769 and settled with his family at Boonesboro, in 1775, and again, this antler stayed was there through the between, revolution. This antler was dated between 1730 and 1806. Okay, the Earth, boys and girls, is bombarded by cosmic rays from the sun. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, a thing that is produced by the bombardment of these cosmic rays is a radioactive substance called C14. You tracking, Spencer? You fact-checking? It's taken up by plants. Anything that is alive that eats plants or eats things that have eaten plants accumulates C14. C14 stops accumulating in these organisms when they die. So you stop consuming plants you stop consuming things that consume plants 
and you stop your intake of C14 that is building up in your bones. C14 has a known half-life. So if you take a bone and you can look at the rate of decay of the C14 in it, you can tell how long ago the thing stopped being alive. Now, once they started testing atomic weapons, so from anything that was alive, like C14 won't work. Any, like you can't radiocarbon anything that was alive from the 1950s on. Because then like atmospheric radioactive substances are so prevalent that our, our systems are all out of whack. Like if you checked us, you wouldn't be able to use, you wouldn't be able to radiocarbonate our remains in the future. Hmm. Because we were alive for all that radioactive material that's in the atmosphere now from a, a testing atomic bombs, detonating atomic bombs, and whatnot. So it doesn't work anymore. Then there's, it comes into this thing called dendrochronology where the, the rate at which these cosmic rays bombard the atmosphere fluctuates through time. It's not constant. So what they're able to do is take, for instance, tree rings from old trees. And they're able to count back, like if you cut a tree down right now and I can count back, let's say I find some 300-year-old tree. I can be like, okay, I just cut the tree down. And I can look and I'd be like, this ring was laid down, I know, 300 years ago because I've counted from the core, right, yep. to, to get to where this ring was laid down. And then you can look in that ring at the C-14 that was laid down in that ring that year, and you can get an idea of the relative bombardment of, of these rays. And that's what helps you calibrate it out. But it's like imprecise. When I had my buffalo skull done, I came in with a 66% probability that it died within a couple decades of 1770. So I would just like to look at the report. But go on, Spencer. Well, maybe like the best reason to be skeptical is because there have been trees in like Kentucky and Tennessee that were these landmarks at one point where Daniel Boone supposedly carved his name in there. And like left a cute little note. Like one of them was like, D Boone kilt a bar on tree year seven year 1760. Uh, and a number of these like trees exist in that area. Yeah. But there's, there's like a lot disputing, like, well, actually he spelled his name correctly, but in this tree it was spelled incorrectly. There are other receipts of him writing bear correctly, but in this tree, uh, again, like this is extra folksy how he spelled his name wrong, spelled bear wrong. Etc. Um, so there's just like <laughs> it seems like some pride in that area of of having Daniel Boone artifacts and, and you know going all the way back to like the 1800s when these trees were were you know cut down and and like put on display and stuff like that and it feels a lot like uh, I'm, I'm from South Dakota but I consider myself like an honorary Minnesotan um, and they have the Kensington runestone there. Are you guys familiar with that? Like the <laughs> the giant piece of rock laid in the earth that came up in the roots of a tree where some Vikings had inscribed in this rock that oh, they yeah, came, yeah, 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 yeah. like through the great lakes and stuff. Um, but I know it, that story. Like, 99% of historians say, no, that's, that's a lie. But this popped up, you know, hundreds of years ago because they have like this great, uh, like they take a lot of pride in, in Daniel Boone or people in Minnesota take a lot of pride 
in Vikings beating Christopher Columbus to America. That's what it feels like. I can't remember if it was in Robert Morgan's Boone biography or the Farragher biography, one of these Boone biographies. In the end, he talks about um, all of the alleged artifacts that there was a cottage industry of writing Boone on stuff and that you could fill 10 houses with all the stuff that supposedly came out of Boone's house. And guns that have Boone on them and hatchets that have. It was like, because he was a celebrity in his own era. You know, he was like, he was like famous while he was alive. Hmm. And so, I don't know, man. It's like modern social media, like people writing stuff in trees, like back in the 1800s. It's like making a Facebook post. Yeah. Robert Morgan. Oh, go Robert ahead. Morgan, who you were referring to, is going to be a guest on Kentucky Outdoors Media um, to talk about the supposed Boone antler. What's so, his take on the antler? We don't know. He hasn't been on yet. But he's done the, some other. He hasn't done any other interviews about this antler. The antler came up on December fifteenth, three days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all fresh. I'll put it to you this way: If God came down, let's say Chester. Let's say Chester came over and Chester said, I know because uh, somehow I've had contact with an omniscient being. I know the answer. This is Boone's antler or not. Like I know through magical abilities, I know the true answer. And he said to me, I'm going to give you, you have to take a guess. Boone's antler, not Boone's antler. If you get it wrong, I'm going to shoot you in the head. Okay. So here I am. I have to get it right. Is it Boone's antler or not? I'll be shot dead if I get the answer wrong. You know what I would say? I'd say, "Uh uh-uh, not Boone's antler. Put in that situation. The Boone artifact thing is is funny that you bring up. Uh, We're publishing an article on TheMeatEater.com today called The Guns of Wyatt Earp, looking at, (laughs) like, what guns did the cinematic Wyatt Earp carry? What guns did the dime novel Wyatt Earp carry? And what guns did the real life Wyatt Earp carry? The reality is that nobody really knows. Um, and there's been guns sold many times at auction that claim to be Wyatt Earps, but everyone would dispute it um, and, and nobody really knows. So that, that feels very much like this Daniel Boone thing. So you don't actually know if he carried a Colt Peacemaker? You're going to have to read the read the article to, right, to get an idea of what uh, what people think he actually carried and the history of the cinematic and the novel version of Wyatt Earp. No, that's good stuff. Spencer, mm-hmm. what would you do if Chester held the gun to your head? No. <laughs> you say not Boone's antler? I'd say not Boone's antler. Yeah, you and me are going to be living to tell another tale, to tell a tale. <laughs> What are the odds that it'd be Boone's and not just like uh, a Newcomb on there or a Ranella or some or Morris, anything like that? How did this one antler from uh, an extinct, not subspecies of elk have Daniel Boone's subscription or uh, signature on it? You think it's an old? I, I think it was a phony from a long time ago. If I had to guess, I don't really know. I mean, who the hell am I? I don't know. Does it look like it's been dremeled in there? 
No, I'm just no that, that'd be a good thing to test, though. <laughs> yeah, that was what I thought. And surely they, they tested this, but I mean, like, you could find it. It wouldn't be that big a deal to find an elk antler from the early 1800s. No. And then dremel into it and maybe leave it in the mud for five years and then pull it out. No, I'll be clear. I think a dude scratched that in there a long ass time ago. That's what I think. Uh, Spencer, you, you had provided a, um, you had provided a recommendation of a transition, a segue to another topic of conversation, but I don't want to steal your transition. So do you want to do your own transition? No, you do it. You'll, you'll probably do it better. You're such a fan. Okay. Uh, you know how Spencer was just talking about Daniel Boone. Well, uh, we're going to talk about Boone and Crockett Club for a minute. How was that? That was great. Yeah. <laughs> Our uh, podcast guest, Jim Heffelfinger, sent us in this article. Um, and I think that he might have been kind of responding to when we had him on. And we were talking about uh, when we had the Boone and Crockett Club, people from the Boone and Crockett Club on. And we were talking about like how things like Boone and Crockett Club. When see when people talk about like a deer having a, I shot a 160 whitetail, right? You're talking about like a measurement system. There's a way to you measure bear skulls. There's a way you measure deer antlers. Um, and there's like record books. So if you shoot a big buck, you measure it. You go like, wow, this buck's a 190 inch whitetail, and you send it off, and they put it in their record books. And um, there's this article that Heffelfinger sent us. That, that Spencer will break down a little bit about criticisms of that system. Like, is it really helpful? Because it's kind of become like, like Boone and Crockett club, the score has become like a, so it's a social thing. It's like a way to brag up whatever, but they like, they, but they point out that it had like a scientific foundation. And this, uh, Heffelfinger sent us this article that kind of lays into this a little bit. And the criticism would be that if if you are trying to track a population of critters, how is it helpful to only look at the biggest ones? If there's a minimum size to get in, what are you really learning? That minimum size being for like I think a typical whitetail is 160 and a non-typical is, uh, I don't know, 170 or 180. Um, are, are you really actually like learning trends about the health of populations or not? So if you're only interested in the big ones. Yes. Well, because the big ones are the indicators of a healthy population of animals. Did y'all know I'm a Boone, an official Boone and Crockett score? No, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. I didn't know that, no. So I, you, this is, this, I love this topic because on the surface, it does seem it's easy to buy what this guy's saying, but it's a little bit deeper than that to understand it in that you got to go back to originally when this system was built. It was built before much of our modern science. And the way to understand the health of systems, an indicator was the number of older mature males. So basically they quantified the, a number that's, that said this is a mature, healthy species. And so a uh, typical Boone and Crockett Act, the reason Boone and Crockett uh, uh, awards and gives preference to symmetry is because symmetry – typically indicates health that's such that's uh, i i i know that argument but that is bs well hey but it's it's actually not uh the Come back on. in the day back in the day if a big buck that was who's the kicking best. ass throws a little sticker out his right antler 
You know, you don't look at them and be like, "Oh, something must be wrong with them." Well, no, no, it's not talking about that though. And again, you got to think this. This was this system was designed in the, you know, a hundred years ago. What it's talking about is when you have an animal that's stressed, you get massive amounts of dissymmetry. Yes, I mean, like you know, the back right leg is messed up. the The right antler is going to be messed up. No, no, um, left antler. It's the other left way. opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. with the front leg, if the front right leg is messed up, then the front right antler is messed up. With the is back right? leg, it's the opposite. Yes. Huh? You sure? And and hey, the other thing, and I I love it that this came up, and just stop me because I could take the next hour and talk about this. And I'm not a big score guy. Like I'm not gonna go. Like I have no goals to like kill Boone and Crockett animals. Why not? But I mean, I, I, like I would just assume kill a. 140 inch deer on the mountain over here that I love is go to Canada oh, and yeah, kill a 180. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I like, you. I don't, I'm not a score guy, but I think there's relevance to it because of its historical precedence. And it, at the time, actually, trophy hunting, quote unquote, like, t- and that meaning targeting an animal because of the size of its headgear is actually what helped save North American hunting because the brown is down philosophy was the way it went. We were coming out of an era of market hunting, going into an era when all these guys were saying, nah, don't, you know, we got to leave the females and young. We got to leave the juvenile males. I tell you what I'll do. Let's make, let's, uh, let's make a number. Let's make a scoring system that rewards killing an older mature male. And let's make that culturally cool to kill an older mature male and it totally took the pressure off of females and young and juvenile males and put it on older mature species which have already contributed to the gene pool and which are the best animals from a conservation standpoint to take out especially in a vulnerable herd so like you got to think about it that way and now you know 125 years later the Boone and Crockett Club is do the main focus of the organization is not their record keeping. They still keep records, but the main focus of their their thrust is conservation efforts and dissemination of information and they're funding a whole bunch of stuff. You know, they just have this niche that they work in. And so, man, when people give BC a bad rap, I gotta Dude, stand not, up to the listen, plate. Man, I'm not I'll kick your I'm not giving BC a bad rap. <laughs> No, no, no. Not you, Steve. Oh, okay. I know you would. I know you're not. Really. I, I, I'm not saying you. I'm just saying people. Because yeah. people do. And it's because they don't know. They, they couldn't tell you what I just told you. Yeah. You know, you know what's super embarrassing to me, Clay? I spent my whole so, life saying my old man was a scorer. Because he was like, dude, I know he scored for Pope and Young, but I always said he was a scorer for commemorative Bucks of Michigan, Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young. But then the dudes at Boone and Crockett told me, your old man wasn't a scorer because mm. they went and looked in the database and his old his name wasn't in there. Mm. So he was lying or I didn't remember right. But he was a scorer because everybody, I've all through growing up, people would bring their deer over to have him score them. Yeah. And originally the the scoring of deer was, was like very rudimentary. It was like spread and length of time and that was it. But then in 1950s, we got the model that we now know today. We're on like a, a five by five buck. You would have 20 measurements or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the main thing to think about to like, to just say, this is like solid, rational thinking that takes into account the last hundred years of what's happened in American North American conservation is that 
a scoring system turned the hunting culture from a market hunting culture into a conservation hunting culture by putting emphasis on older mature males. I think it's that simple. And that's why we hat tip to it today. That's why we say, oh, man, he killed a Boone and Crockett buck. Guys say that, and they have no idea what they're saying. I mean, people say it all the time. And, and, it, and it's, it's like, heck, yeah, I'm glad somebody stepped up to the plate and changed us from a bunch of market hunting fools. OnX Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. From backyard plinking to serious training to even big game hunting, humorexairguns.com has what you need. Humorex offers the most diverse lineup of air guns, from traditional BB and pellet guns to cutting-edge rifles that fire 50 caliber slugs or even broadhead-tipped arrows. As air gun hunting has grown across the nation, Humorex Air Guns has led the way with innovative products designed to get the job done. Whether you're hunting whitetails, feral hogs, iguanas, squirrels, rabbits, or even elk or bison, Humorexairguns.com is your source for the best air-powered rifles and pistols. Humorexairguns.com also has a lineup of airsoft and paintball markers that replicate your favorite concealed carry pistols, which allow you to practice drawing, aiming, and firing for pennies on the dollar and without loading up to go to the range. Visit Humorexairguns.com to see how far air power has come since you were a little kid. That's humorexairguns.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So the criticism of that, though, Clay, would be like in 2020. And he's not hacking on BC. That's right. I understand. The criticism <laughs> I'm, I'm with would be that like in 2020, it's not useful. Like there, there are other ways that we could uh, measure the health of a population of critters. And so they, well, and we, and we do. That's right. And so Heffelfinger and Taylor Lashar, who has written for the meateater.com very recently, they looked at Pope and Young 
Dallas Safari Club and Boone and Crockett tracked the trends over time. And they wanted to see if they all basically agreed with each other on like the, the trend of the score of deer. Um, and if they did agree with each other, then you could see why this is relevant and why this information would be helpful. If they didn't agree with, with each other, say you had uh, the, you know, Boone and Crockett club was really high in the fifties and now it's really low for like the, the score of critters and Pope and young was really low in the fifties and now it's really high. Then, then you could argue that these criticisms um, like are legit. What they noticed though, is that all three clubs agree with each other on the trend of the score of antlers from like the fifties up until now, meaning that this is relevant. You can like assess something based off of only looking at the top 1% of critters. Only because they all agree. That, that was my understanding from now, this How paper. is that a criticism? Is that's a criticism? No, no. He is okay. saying that because Pope and young has the same trend as DCI and because DCI has the same trend as Boone and Crockett, that you could actually look at these numbers and like make some informed decisions by only looking at the biggest things that have the biggest antlers and the biggest horns. I wish I'd have read this thing myself. Because I'm I'm telling you that's what it says. Oh my god. But okay. Well think about places where where there are not big deer. Let's just take whitetails that we're all familiar with. Like there's not a lot of Boone and Crockett deer coming out of Mississippi, Georgia, Arkansas. And it's it's because our populations of deer for the habitat are are sometimes overpopulated. Um, you know, like big deer coming out of the Midwest where we probably have some of the healthiest deer herds in the country, minus CWD. Yeah, but here's the thing, man. Here's why Spencer didn't read the article right. (laughs) Think about it like this. Let's say I said, I'm going to find a way to measure the health of humans by measuring their thumbs. And I'm like, what I do is I measure the length of their thumb, then I measure around the big knuckle, and that thumb gets a score. And this is how I'm going to track how well humans are doing. Is Are they making big people with big thumbs? At the same time, Chester here says, you know, I'm going to track how well humans are doing by measuring thumbs. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure the length of the thumb and then the circumference of the thickest part of that thumb, regardless of where it sits. And Seth then says, yeah, I'm going to track the well-being of humans by measuring thumbs. I'm going to measure... Uh, the length of the thumb, plus I'm going to take four circumferences off the thumb. And the thickness of the nail. And the thickness of the nail. He's going to measure the thickness of the nail, too. Oh, he's one of those guys. So here we have Boone and Crock. I'm Boone and Crock Club. Chester's Safari Club. Seth is Pope and Young. Okay? We're all measuring thumbs a little different, but we're all measuring thumbs. But I so don't think that they do measure differently. They do, measure, I, they do have different... What is the difference between very minute difference? That's why I'm trying to make these thumb measurements minutely different. Oh, I so threw in the, the if later someone said, "Oh, what his Ronella's thing about measuring these stupid thumbs to see how well people are doing," um, let's test whether it's appropriate to see what Chester and Seth's thumb measurements are like. And Chester and Seth are like, "Oh yeah, bro, um, I've noticed the same thing with my thumb measurements." That doesn't tell you anything. Well, I mean, you've, there's a lot. This this analogy, I, I'm not sure it flies because oh we, no, it's, we, it's actually we have, it's actually a perfect analogy. 
we we don't know that human thumb length has any correlation to human health. We do know That's that antler development. <laughs> we do know that antler development, which is directly related to animal health, is is massively correlated. Hey, here I think this could help solve some of this debate. No, I want I want to make a quick bet with you, Clay. Okay. I'll bet you $5 that Spencer's not doing a good job of telling us what the article's about. Can, can I read you a few <laughs> sentences from the article? Let me make my bet first. Okay. I mean, are you, who's deciding if he's done this? I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you a dollar then. <laughs> okay. All right, Spencer. Prove that you're reading the article right. This is from the article. If trends in horn and antler size were being influenced by a minimum entry score bias, then we would expect that different record, different records programs with different minimum size requirements. Oh, well, you didn't. Would you tell left a that part out. Story about the direction and the strength of trends. For example, the strength of trends in the horns and antlers recorded by the Boone and Crockett Club with a higher minimum should be less than the trends in the Pope and Young records with a lower requirement. For right, well, you didn't tell me that part. What what part did I leave out about the minimums and all that? Yeah, I, s- I said that the minimums that there's I like take a- check or cash. No, because here's <laughs> the thing. Here's the thing. Just because he understood it doesn't mean that he delivered it properly. I've been working with this guy for a little while, <laughs> and I'll tell you, if there's one thing that Spencer Newharth is, it is it is like correct in. You know, okay. He's he's on his game. So he was yes. I'm changing my complaint. He understood it well, but in explaining it to me now, he left out the part that would have made me understand. <laughs> now here's here's my no. Gripe. That now it's wait, making wait. total sense. Okay, and they saw the trends were the exact same. Ah, uh, no, three no, clubs. no. See, I knew if Heffelfinger sent it over, it had to have been reasonable. That's why. I, <laughs> that's why I thought you were messing it up. My gripe with the Boone and Crockett Club is not the Boone and Crockett Club's fault. It is when people hold up states like Wisconsin and say that they are the big buck king because they have more Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young records than anybody. But I am sure that they do not kill two or three times as many giant deer as a state like Texas. It's just that the culture prioritizes entering them in places like Wisconsin. Yeah, and then in Texas, you got to remember if it's high fence, they won't. Ex- no, they'll still accept it in some other. Not Boone and Crockett. No, well, sir. no, they do, but they also don't. They keep track of road kills and stuff and some other sort of thing. Well, so Boone and Crockett Club keeps track of all animals despite method of kill, and they even keep records of pickups because again, it's a biological record, so it doesn't yeah. matter if a hunter kills it or not. Spencer, I... But you can't get in the, like, you can't sort of be honored if it's a high-fence deer. Texas, it doesn't have to be Texas in this argument either. It can be any state. Wisconsin does not kill twice as many big giant bucks as Kansas, despite them having twice as many entries in the books. Yeah, you think, so dudes in Wisconsin have a higher proclivity or or have a, there's a greater chance that some mug in Wisconsin is going to register his buck through BNC. I think exactly. I think that's because of all the buck pools uh, at the bars it could be because they oh, have to score their deer to win the stuff. Yep, to win the money. You know, I'll buy that. I think you're. Uh, I think you're sort of onto something there. But you're also talking about hunter numbers when you're talking about Wisconsin and Kansas. I mean, like 
incredibly more hunters in Wisconsin than Kansas. But I think your point's well taken. And and I don't think the Boone and Crockett Boone and Crockett Club is trying to say that this is an infallible biological record. You know, at the time it was created, it was the best we had. It was innovative and it it worked to turn a market hunting culture into a conservation culture where we said we're going to we're going to give value to older mature males and species. So that's the good thing. But what you're saying, Spencer, is is right. There there could be holes inside of it, but that doesn't mean that it's totally invalid. You know, in Boone and Crockett's not saying that, you know, certainly every deer that net Boone and Crockett nets Boone and Crockett is not being scored, that's for sure. But uh, but uh, I I think it I think it has I think it has good historical precedence. One thing I will say is that the net score is what people get tripped up on is they say that's not relevant. And that's where you take the symmetrical difference from one side and deduct it from the other. And the animal is penalized in the scoring system. And people are like, that's not relevant. And, you know, I think, I think Boone and Crockett, they can't change the way they score animals because they've been scoring animals for 120 years. Do you understand that? It's like no, they're I understand, locked yeah. in. They told they're, us about that when they were right here. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think all those guys would say, yeah, there, there may be a better way to actually evaluate the size of a whitetail deer rack, but we're not going to do it because we can't because it would invalidate all the scores behind it, you know? So I think when you look at it, like the idea that the Boone and Crockett Club is just a bunch of ego-driven guys wanting to see who has the biggest buck is just not true. I mean, it's just really not. I mean, I... Yeah, and, and we know these guys, Steve. You know a lot of these guys, and I mean they're they're conservation minded hunters, just like us. That you know, very few, very few guys are chasing scores. That's my thoughts. That's fine. That's good. What All were right. you going to debate me on? Oh, I don't know. We could have, well, I don't know. I just kind of feel like I feel like uh, it's it's like leading to something, man. Like it's going to lead to us going toe to toe on something. Oh. I don't know. Okay. Okay. You didn't have a. I thought you had a specific topic. Oh no no no. Oh no. man. I'm, now I'm disappointed. I just want to square. This, I, I just want to square really... off on something, man. Oh, that'd be awesome. So, uh, real quick. Speaking of, uh, watch this segue, Spencer. Speaking of um, deer having uh, big old antlers. Uh, imagine if they had big old tusks. Take it away, Seth. And they used to. <laughs> ha! That was good. <laughs> However, Super good. They don't anymore. But some deer, it's rare, some deer still have fangs or canines. And a The muntjac. Yeah, there's, well, that there, little there's still live? species of deer out there that have them. Yeah, his name, one of them is the munt. Remy shot one, munt. Where are they from? Hold on. Keep talking. Anyway, there's, there's a... From South Asia. There's South a, Asia. He's up. got little tusks. Yeah. Great big tuskers. Um, There's a podcast listener that that wrote in and sent a picture of a, a deer he shot in South Texas um, that had canines. Um, And so I, I started looking in to deer with canines and um, found an article written by Kip Adams back in 
2016, uh, where he cited a lot of people in here. Um, but basically, a, a, a canine is like an evolutionary throwback to ancestral deer that had big canines, big fangs. Um, and that's sort of like elk ivory. Yeah. Like, is a vestigial tusk. Like, it used to have a tusk, now it doesn't. Yeah. Which you think, you think like, a thousand years from now, they'll eventually just be gone? You think they'll evolve away from that? Yeah, I don't think a thousand years is... 10,000? Yeah. A million? I don't know. I think it's headed toward the going away. Yeah. They just don't need them. Yeah. It's headed toward the going away. Um, But there was interesting studies done, um, you know, across the U.S., and it kind of seems as if, like, re- like, depending on the region, it's more prevalent than other places. For instance, um, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, there was they they looked at 166 deer and found that four of those deer, which is 2.4 percent, had canines. Um, they looked at deer in the Lower Peninsula. They they looked at 134, which one of them had canines, which is 0.07%. Um, in Florida, they looked at 95 deer. Four of those had canines, 4.2%. So, I don't know. Could be that deer in, in certain areas are still holding on to that ancient ancestral trait. Yeah, we had a guy write in. I remember this dude writing in, but another dude wrote in recently, and he had shot a fanged, a tusked buck. I think it was in Florida that had this crazy facial mat marking, like it had like this mask on its face, black. And they were saying that that was sort of like this, this, you know, this like this recessive gene that had been triggered in that deer for whatever reason. Louisiana. Was it Louisiana? A crazy looking like face mask, similar to other deer forms. It had a black Y on its face that the top of the Y started at like its pedicles. And then it met like, like where its eyes are. And then that Y, the bottom of it continued all the way down to its nose. And that was the marking. Jim Heffelfinger was uh, quoted in an article about that deer saying, yeah, that's just like a throwback um, piece of genetics that made it into this deer in 2016. He also talked about the black markings on their face. If you look at a whitetail's lower jaw, can you picture whitetail's lower jaw where it has that black ring Mm -hmm. like right behind its nose? That is where the fangs would have stuck out in a whitetail, and it'd be black there to make them show better. Oh. to other deer and show them how big and impressive mm. their fangs are. So that's oh, that why makes sense. you see that black ring along their bottom jaw. Oh, I like that, man. One last thing I want to touch on real quick. Uh, another dude wrote in. T- tell this story, Seth. Yep, so there's another dude that, that wrote in. He's from um, southeast New Hampshire. And he wrote in about a buck. He thought it was a buck, a buck that he killed um, in southeast New Hampshire. He said it was uh, in an area that has very high hunter density, a lot of pressure. Um, he shot it November 9th of 2019, and it, 
it was with three other does. So it was four deer all together. And he thought it was weird when the deer came through that the buck was the first of the four. So the buck was leading the does, which. But it wasn't a buck. It wasn't a buck. A buck buck doe. You would think November 9th that the buck would be in the back, but it wasn't a buck. He shoots this deer. Oh, I got what you're saying. It was unusual because, yeah, the buck would always be following the does. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Let, let me plug an article real quick. Pat Durkin is publishing an article on the media.com in January that talks about why the bucks and bulls are always last when they're walking out at night and you're waiting to kill them. Why are they always the last ones? I already know. I'll have to read that one. I'm dying. I don't really know. <laughs> um, anyway, so this this guy, he shoots his deer, and it, it goes a, a short distance and falls. And he calls a buddy to have him help him. And while he's waiting for his buddy, he goes down and looks like for first blood. Um, and while he's doing that, he noticed a a spike comes running by, grunting and all hot and bothered. Cause Can you do that grunt, even though you can't do the squeal of a or the the roar of a weasel? Yeah. That's good. Um. Anyway, he comes all he comes by all hot and bothered at close distance. Finally, sees him, spooks off, and the guy, his buddy shows up. They start tracking the deer, and. uh same buck comes through again, grunting, and sees him again, spooks off. So, one, you know, one of these deer, I think they assumed that it was the one that he shot, um, was in, in asterisk. In asterisk. Even though it was carrying around antlers. Yeah. Um, so they, they, took, they took this deer to get aged, and the biologist just recently got back to him and said it was 17 years old. That is unbelievable, man. Can transgender deer go into estrus, though? I don't know. Wow. I mean, it's a, it, it had all the female organs. Hey, yeah. Sure. That's it's, what that's what I was going to say. I, I'm I'm not sold on the idea that a antler doe would be fertile. I don't know. I mean, maybe it, only, maybe it didn't throw antlers every year. And the guy that wrote it wrote transgender, but spelled it D-E-E-R, like a little joke, transgender, transgender. Um, I wonder, and I honestly wonder this, does the buck, like, if she comes into heat, she comes into estrus and, the buck, and a buck goes to breed her, does the buck get thrown off? Is there, does the buck register like something's not right? When it sees the antlers, or does it just like he he smells what he needs to smell, and that's all he cares about? I I think it from like a deer behavior standpoint, a buck would see the visual cue of antlers from a long distance, and he might come in to investigate, thinking he's about to get in a fight. Once he got closer and actually engaged the attention of the doe that had antlers, that doe would begin to send body signals that she wasn't a buck. And he would then, that would then override the visual cue that this is a buck because of antlers. Yeah. So that he's doe like, would start, I don't care what you got on your head. Yeah. I'm here for. I think, <clears throat> I think that smell just, just trumps everything. Yeah. That time of year, that's all they're thinking about. Yeah. No judgment. Just curious, man. Yeah. Just curious. 
Someone's going to fill up uh, our inbox with like a trail cam photo of a buck mounting another buck. It's happened for sure. Uh, now we're going to start getting pictures of that. Yeah. And then uh, when, when you're separating cows from their calves and, and, and when they're coming into, you know, uh, never mind. There's situations where I'll just there's situations where cows mount cows. Oh, yeah. Steers jumping on each other all the time. Yeah. So the stuff goes on. Now, uh, Clay, I'm going to see you in a very soon. We're going to go deer hunting. You can't decide if you're going to bring your bow or your gun. You don't need to decide right now. But I want to tell you something. I do not believe in bringing both. I think it's wrong. <laughs> I don't believe in bringing both. If you're a bow hunter, then be a damn bow hunter. Don't come and be like, I'm going to try with my bow and then switch to my gun because I'm a bow hunter only up to the point where I might get afraid that I won't be successful. Okay. Can, can I argue I for Clay? Think it's, for a Im- it's immoral. I would like to refer to my lawyer, Spencer Newharth, and I would also like to say that I am not like fighting for this position. But you've been hinting at you hinted to me. Oh, you, I've been I've you been hinted in this about bringing both, and I will not hunt with you. Well, what Spencer? I'm going to let Spencer talk first. He he's itching to go. I I was fighting for Clay to bring both and be like, take your bow for a few days. Third day, and no. grab your rifle. No. I think one of the worst sayings in hunting, and it's something that I heard on the Outdoor Channel when I was probably like 12 or 13 years old, and uh, it it like ruined me for a period of time. And it was this outdoor show that I was watching where uh, the woman was at some big buck outfitter in Iowa. What was the Iowa. show? I, I don't recall. Oh, I could take a guess. doesn't matter. I could take a guess, but it wouldn't be fair to them if I was wrong. Yep. They were at like some outfitter in Iowa or Kansas. And it was the last day of the hunt, and like a 120-inch, probably three-and-a-half-year-old white-tailed buck walks by, and they choose to pass. And then uh, they cut to the interview, and the woman says, now you never shoot something on the last day that you wouldn't shoot on the first. And that I was like, oh, like that's that's good advice, right? Like that's good advice. No, that's not. That that's, she, stole that. she stole that from Yanni and messed it all up. So, so I I take a lot of issue with that saying, and your the version saying, is a version of that. That like I, you're saying that like you cannot go into a hunt and move the goalpost. You can't go into a hunt and be like, I'm going to kill a 150 inch buck, and then on the second to last day, you're like, well, it's oh probably no, of not course you happen. do that. Of course so you then, do that. Then a 130 inch buck walks by. That's totally fine. And you kill that instead. That's well, totally how, fine. How is that? Okay, how is that different than what you're telling Clay? I just think showing up with all kind of weapons that you have like in your head sort of tiered out as like best case, you know, it'd be like, well, I'm really trying to get one with my bow. Now, failing that, I'm going to try to get one with my rifle. Failing that, I will try to get one with my truck. It's just like, I just like, just make up well, your mind, man. Listen, here's, here's the deal. Make up your mind. What when you When you say that, what you are prioritizing in your hegemon of of ideas is that the method of kill is most important. No. And no. I used to no you are. Because no, I used to be I I Steve, you're this is touching on some deep rooted issues inside of me because I grew up 
with such a strict bow hunting in the, such a strict bow hunting world that like I mean we we didn't have guns we 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 bow hunted and as I became an adult I I feel like and I still love to bow hunt that's like my default thing to do but I kind of just became okay with using a gun and so I kind of and and obviously I still love to bow hunt but so I look at it more from a the macro hunt picture like I would like to go where we're going and take a good whitetail deer. I would prefer to do it with a bow. I don't know they'd what I'm up bow. against. I, uh, I, I then bring a bow. I don't. I don't know what I'm up against. But Steve, I want to say too, I'm on your team on this. I like what you said. That, that I was like, yeah, I like that. I mean, I like the idea of not switching. I don't like to switch. I've switched but, before, and I've brought a bow. And I've brought a rifle or a bow and a shotgun. It just never seems to work out for me that well because I'm not – I like the commitment. At least when – for me, it's just – it hasn't worked out that well. It's like bring the bow, stick with it, or well, bring the shotgun. Well, our situation, too, is we have a very short time period. You know, we, we don't have a lot of time to get this done. But So I'm, I'm on your team, Steve, but like a hard never-do-that – philosophy you know i got i think we give i think we got to give some grace i to me that's like some version of what uh that woman said on the outdoor channel and that was a mantra that i went by for a while that i would like to go back and retroactively kick my own ass for like passing on deer because i was like you know what you never shoot a deer in the last day that you wouldn't shoot on the first no you're you're messing that saying up it's yanni's saying it goes both ways. Are you going to say like you never shoot a deer this, on the first day? Never pass up on the first day what you'd be happy to have on the last. I'm, I'm telling you what this woman said on the Outdoor Channel that uh, caused me to pass on many deer in the future that I would I wish I could go back and shoot those deer because I would have been happier in the moment shooting that younger buck than uh, not shooting it and then just like having that mantra rolling around in my head like you don't shoot a buck on the last day you wouldn't shoot on the first that's not uh, good deer management I'll have the last word Uh, no that's different that's all Clay I don't care what in the world you bring down there you just bring one of them gotcha no I actually have your rifle I'm bringing it so you either decide either way I'm bringing you the rifle yeah, yeah. I like the archery idea, though. Oh, yeah. I think that's what you should do, man. We'll have a hey, hell of a lot of fun. Let's do it. The cool part I about like that, it. this hunt is going to be peak rut. Um, rattling is going to be very effective. Yeah. And the interaction you're going to have at close distances by rattling bucks in is going to be pretty sweet. Yeah. And we're on, like, private <laughs> land in Texas that barely no one gets the hunt on. Could be really good. Could be really good. I think it's going to be. If it was anything like last year when we were there, when Steve was hunting Neil Guy last year. Yeah, it'd be like, oh, look, a zebra. It was <laughs> it was insanely good, and we weren't hunting whitetails. Well, I've got a decoy. I picked up a decoy today, a real mobile decoy that we can just pop out real quick. It's a pop-up decoy, double-sided pop-up decoy, Montana decoy. So, man, we'll pop that thing out. We'll just have to be pretty strategic with our setup. Because you're going to be rattling for me, Steve, right? Yeah, I can so picture we'll just... us arguing a fair bit about too much <laughs> rattling and not enough rattling. We'll, we'll get it all sorted out, Clay. 
Uh, it's I don't know awesome, if our friendship man. is going to hold up, but we'll get it sorted out. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, All right, guys. See ya. See you guys. See you, Steve. See ya. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.